Chapter 18 of Secretary Hawkins in Cuba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Secretary Hawkins in Cuba by Secretary Hawkins. The Rattle of Chains. I said nothing next morning about my experience that night. At first, when I opened my eyes and saw the bright sunlight pouring through the window, I imagined that I had had some sort of nightmare. That the face, that ugly, greenish face that had peered at me through the iron grating of my window, had been unreal, only a thing of my own imagination. But gradually, as I hurried into my clothes, and went down to the breakfast room, I realized that it had been true, that I had been awakened and had seen that face, that I had run to the window and looked out. Yes, I had seen it. It was all true. Dak and Link and Uncle Lucio were seated at the breakfast table. Hello, Hawkins, shouted Dak. Well... Have you slept upon your problem? I smiled and rubbed my eyes to try to get the slipness out of them. He has certainly slept, laughed Uncle Lucio. And I'll wager he can tell us who took the diamond out of my room. Yes, I answered. It was a little lame man with one leg twisted and drawn up so that only the toe of that foot touches the ground. They all looked astonished. Dak looked at me closely, as though he was trying to see whether or not I was really awake or talking in my sleep. But Lucio looked interested. A lame man, you say? He should be easy to find. I would know him if I saw him anywhere, I answered. What does he look like? asked Dak. He has an evil-looking face, a greenish face, and a bald head. Greenish face? What sort of a greenish face? Just greenish. You know what that is. They tried to make me tell them where I had seen this little lame man, but I had made up my mind that I would say nothing of my scare the night before. So I told them to stop asking me further questions. I have told you what the thief looks like. Surely most anybody hereabouts would have noticed a lame man. Any time I ever see a lame man, I always notice him, because he is walking differently than other men. Certainly, said Lucio. I shall scout around the neighborhood a bit and try to find out if anybody knows a lame man in this locality. Immediately after breakfast, Lucio left, and Doc took us to the room for our daily studies. I could not get my mind on my lessons, however, for always came back to me the remembrance of that hideous face that had peered in at me through my bedroom window the night before. What had the lame man wanted? Why had he looked in my window?
if he had taken the diamond, and I had no doubt but that he had taken it, why had he come back? Perhaps, I thought, he believed there were other gems in the house. Maybe he expected to find one in my room too. But why had he looked at me with such an evil leer upon his face? Why had he not been afraid when he saw that I was sitting up in bed and watching him? He was no ghost. He was a real, live human being. For I had seen him walk away, had heard his lame footstep tapping on the cement walk. I had solved the mystery of the theft of the diamond. I knew it was the lame man who had taken the stone. But now I was confronted with an even greater mystery, and that was what bothered me as I tried to study that morning. I finally told Dak that I could not work upon my lessons this day. I told him my head was so full of aches and worries that I would have to be excused. Dak good-naturedly agreed to let us off and advised me to take a walk out in the morning sunshine. So we put our books away, and Link and I went out into the gardens that faced the left front of Villa Casanova. We sat on a stone bench under a palm tree and talked a while, but somehow I did not feel like talking. I wanted to think, and so finally we were sitting there quietly. Link, whittling a man's face out of a coconut, while I watched him. The further Link whittled, the more the face on the coconut reminded me of the face that had appeared at my window. A shout from the roadway broke the silence, and there stood Will Standish, hands in his white trousers pockets, smiling down at us. Say, you fellows! He called, why don't you come for a ride? I've got the pony hitched to the cart this morning, and it's a lovely day to travel. Glad to go along, I answered. Will you come, Link? Sure, said the skinny guy. I can finish this as I ride. Somehow or other, Link had become fond of whittling coconuts since his arrival at Villa Casanova and he had become such an expert at it now that he could cut almost any sort of a face in the side of a brown hole. There were two seats in Will's pony cart, and I sat in the front with Will, while Link stretched out on the rear seat and continued to work at the cocoa as we rode. Will drove us through the narrow lanes that serve as roads through the sugar cane country, and I never enjoyed scenery as much as I did on this sunny day in Cuba. When we had ridden for about a half an hour, we were in the midst of the cane fields, where no matter in which direction I looked, I could only see a sea of green cane, with here and there a palm tree or planter's house and the big sugar mill standing like a big exclamation point at the end of a mighty sentence. 
at length Will Standish drew in his pony and stepped under the wagon shed of a whitewashed house at the end of one section of a cane field. I saw that he expected us to get out of here. And I said, We must be careful, Will. He nodded his head. I know, he said, in a low tone that Link could not hear. This is only my friend, Francisco. He had some delicious pineapple freeze. He is a good man. Then, raising his voice, he called, Come on, Link, finish that coconut jinx after a while. Francisco proved to be a very pleasant old man who knew how to make a most pleasant drink out of pineapples, of which he had an endless supply in wicker baskets stored around his house. Will explained to us that the workers in the fields passed there on their way home to drink his famous piña fría, as they call it, which is Spanish for called pineapple. When I told Will that Francisco was the first Cuban I really liked, he grew much excited and rambled off a yard or two in Spanish, which Will listened to with a grin, and then explained to me. He says, explained Will, that you must not call him a Cuban. He was born on the Isle of Pines. All right, then, I said laughing. He is a pineapple islander. Francisco seemed to be pleased at this when Will translated it to him and made us each another drink. When we were ready to go and Will offered to pay him, old Francisco said it was a pleasure to treat boys and refused to take the coin. So we thanked him and jumped into the cart again and started back. Francisco standing in the door of his white house and waving at us until at a bend of the road his dwelling place was hidden behind the tall cane. On our way we passed several cane carts drawn by ox teams for oxen to a cart and driven by Cuban men and boys. The carts were built with two wheels and sticks on each side held the cane on the cart, and it was slow traveling, although it seemed to me that it did not make much difference to the drivers if they ever got to where they were bound for. I suppose it is the drowsy summer weather, but whatever it is, it is certain that the average workman in Cuba takes his time about doing things. Will, I said, as we drove back to the main road, did you ever happen to see a man around here who is lame, who has one foot that hardly reaches the ground? Will looked at me as though he thought I were trying to kid him. Now, he said, laughing, why? Think hard, I said, because I would like to know him. Don't you ever remember seeing a lame man somewhere around here or around Casanova? Will shook his head slowly. No, he repeated. If I had Hawkins, I would have remembered. 
I don't very easily forget. But I haven't seen a lame man since I've been here. I suppose there are lots of lame people in the cities, like Havana or Santiago. But there's been none around here, Hawkins. They don't find easy work here. I said no more on the way home. We asked Will Stanish to have dinner with us. But he said he had to take the pony home and wanted to fix up his playhouse and told us to be sure to come over soon and see how he had it arranged. I told him I would come if he was sure those Cuban boys would not be around. Whereupon he laughed and promised me that he would have no further trouble from Miguel and his dirty followers. So Will turned his pony around and went back, while Link and I watched him till he was out of sight, and then went in the front door together. As we entered, Link, who walked ahead of me, turned suddenly and said, Did you hear anything? I listened, but heard no sound. You must have been mistaken, Link, I answered. I didn't hear a thing. Listen, said Link, holding up a finger. I listened as he bade me, and for an instant, I thought I heard the sound of a jingling of tiny bells, only for an instant, so that I could not be positive. We listened together for a long time, but nothing more did we hear. What was it? asked Link in a whisper. I saw that he was becoming excited, so I said, Nothing at all, Link. I heard nothing. But Link shook his head. I heard it when I came in the door, as if someone heard us coming and tried to get away quick. A door closed, I am sure of it. I heard that as I unlocked the front door. Then it sounded as if a bolt on a chain. Nonsense, I said, laughing. You are letting this place to get on your nerves, Link. We said no more about it, but I knew that I had heard something. What it was, I could not imagine. I had thought of the jingling of tiny bells. It reminded me of a story I once heard about a house that was haunted in which the sound of tiny bells could be heard in different rooms during the night. The owner of that house had become rich and was a miser. The owner of that house had become rich and was a miser. He hid his money in the walls under the plaster, and then, in order to frighten people away, he fixed it so that the sound of bells would be heard during the night. It was not discovered until some fellow with brains enough figured it out and tore down a wall and trapped a few dozen rats that had little bells tied to their necks. That's what the old miser had done. But I knew nothing like that was in Villa Casanova. I was not sure that I had heard the jingling of tiny bells. I just thought I heard something like that as we entered the villa, and it was right there in the big living room 
near the big painting of the civilian captive, about which I have written before. We went into the library where we found Doc Waters, and Link told him about that. Doc laughed and patted Link's head. You are allowing yourself to imagine all sorts of things, Link, he said. Yes, said Link. I can't help it, Doc. I'm sick of this villa. I want to go home. Why don't you let me go back to Kentucky with my pap? We got our old houseboat there. I'd like it lots better than all this fancy stuff. There's your Uncle Lucio, replied Doc. Ask him. Lucio came in the side door. I've been unable to locate the lame man, he said. I'm afraid, Hawkins, that you must have had a dream last night. Or else the lame man you speak of must be a very clever man. I have told you all I know, I said, and I didn't dream it, Uncle Lucio. We sat in the library and talked. Link begged Lucio to let him go back with his daddy to their old houseboat home. But Lucio had a way about him that no one could refuse. And he could do more with Link, his nephew, than anybody else. I saw your father this afternoon, said Uncle Lucio, and I asked him to come and stay with us tonight. You will like that, and it will make you like the villa better if he comes to visit us often. That made Link much happier. We all ate a hearty supper of the best that Delgado knew how to cook, and then went into the music room, where Uncle Lucio surprised us by sitting himself for the first time at the piano and playing a number of old college tunes for us. Doug Waters listened as he smoked his cigar, and his eyes gleamed merrily at the sound of those college airs. And when Lucio started a certain one, Doug snatched his cigar from his teeth and began to sing. Ah, boy, it brought back the days in the houseboat, the old organ, Lou Hunter, the singing practice, and the day shortly after we got the organ, when I came down and found Doug Waters playing a lively tune while the sheriff was cutting a caper across the houseboat floor. The music and singing was interrupted by the arrival of Link's father and Valdez. Glad to see you, boy, said Link's daddy. I missed you a heap, son. How you been? We left them for a few minutes, Lucio going over to talk to Valdez, while Doug and I sat by the piano. Doug showed me a few chords to play, and I was getting interested when Lucio spoke up. Well, Jeff, he said, addressing Link's father, how are things down on the racks? Mr. Lambert shook his head, and his face had a worried look. I wish you'd get me away from there, Luge, he said. If you don't, you're going to wake up some morning and find me gone. You don't intend to swim back to the States, do you? No, I won't be able to do any more swimming by that time, Luge. There's something worse than what you think over there on those wrecks. 
I believe those wrecks are cursed, Luge. Ask Valdez what we heard. Ain't he told you nothing? Lucio smiled. Of course he has, but you will hear strange noises in any sort of a place like that. It's lonesome, deserted, and all kinds of sounds come to you in the night, but you needn't be afraid of sounds. No, I ain't, Luge, but a sound has got to be made by something, and I am afraid of that something, especially when I can see it coming or going. Well, supposing on those lonesome wrecks there is a flock of seagulls, they are likely to make any sort of noise, or suppose there is a loose piece of wreck, and in the stillness of the night it lets go and slides down into the sea. It would make a sound that might frighten you, but you wouldn't really be afraid of that, would you, Jeff? Link's father walked over to Lucio and pointed his finger in Lucio's face. It ain't seagulls, and it ain't loose rocks, Luge. Them kind of things I'd know right offhand when I heard them. But when I come to wake up in the night, and I see Valdez wake up too and listen, I know it ain't seagulls or loose rocks what's wakened both of us at once. No, sir, Luge. There's been something going on under the floor of our cabin, and what awakened us last night was the rattle of chains. Chains? cried Link. Did you say chains? Jeff Lambert turned and looked down upon his son. Yes, Sonny, he said. I did say chains, boy. I heard the sound of chains, too, said Link in a whisper. Just as Hawkins and I came in today, right out there in the front room, I wasn't sure, but I seemed to come from behind the big picture of the sad-faced lady. End of chapter 18